Thank you, Emily. Good morning, Memorial Baptist Church. It's fall, y'all. As of yesterday, it's fall, which means you get the boots out, you get the flannels out, you get the sweaters. You get up in the morning and it's cold outside, and by the afternoon, you're sweating to death. Gotta love fall. Not to mention, it's pumpkin spice season for all you crazy pumpkin spice people. I don't get you, but I, you go to these store now and pumpkin spice is all over the place. It's like it just vomits everywhere, and to me, that's what it kind of tastes like. Um, I'm not a pumpkin spice guy, unless it's pumpkin pie. Now, mm, I love me a piece of pumpkin pie. It's one of my favorite kinds of pie. Seasons are interesting because they mark movements of time, and time is very important. Being able to say when something occurred, how something progressed is important. It's how we tell stories. Now, some of you are amazing storytellers, and you're amazing with dates. You can say the day, the month, the year, the hour something happened, and I say you're crazy. Me, I kind of go on, well, that happened, I don't know, probably around kindergarten. Oh, I was elementary age, junior high and high school. Often we use holidays also to denote time. Oh, that happened around the Christmas season, the fall season. So, what is your favorite holidays? Let's, let's hear, what, what do you guys say? What's your favorite holidays? Thanksgiving. Christmas, Thanksgiving. Fall is its own holiday. It's weird. <laughs> Halloween. And if you're extra Baptist, we call that Harvest Festival. But <laughs> Did I hear Easter? Easter's a good one. Then we get some, we get some random ones that we don't hear a lot about. Um, we get Flag Day. How many of you celebrate Flag Day? No? No? We also get our own personal holidays. We get our birthdays, our anniversaries. And we tell time by them. And the Jews did the same thing because holidays were important. Holidays was the time. To, what do we do celebrate holidays for? We remember, we think upon, we reflect. We might remember on Easter that Jesus paid the price for our sins. He made atonement for our sins. Christmas, remember that Jesus was born. It's not about Christmas gifts and decorations of the tree, but it's about Jesus. We have Veterans Day coming up, where we remember those who are, are, have served. And so we reflect upon that. See, holidays notate time, but they also cause us to pause and reflect. And today is actually a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. Most of us that don't speak Jewish talk Day of Atonement, we may have heard in the Old Testament. This is a day that the Israelites would come together and they would repent. They'd offer sacrifices. They would seek atonement from God for their sins. It's one of the holiest days. It's a time of reflection and of, of God saying, do these things and I will atone for your sins. Make these sacrifices for atonement. And they had to do it every year. And that actually happens to fall on today. Now, we know that Jesus, when he laid his life down on the cross, made the ultimate atonement for our sins. But today, still Yom Kippur, that's what they would celebrate. In five days, we have a holiday called Feast of Booths. If you wouldn't mind putting the little booth up there. This happens five days after Yom Kippur. 
It's a week-long celebration of huts. And we're going to get there. Um, but holidays are important to denote time. John chapter 6, which we, I don't know, we spent, felt like a month on. Felt like forever in John chapter 6. We finally got out of John chapter 6. And it feels like it's been months. And when you look at John chapter 6 versus John chapter 7, it's been months. You're actually looking at about seven months, give or take a few days, based on calendars, between the Passover and the Festival of Booths. We've actually traveled a lot of time in just one week in the story of the Gospel of John. We've been going through John slowly, so it's important to step back and kind of remember where we're at with the timeline. Because the Feast of Booths, we're talking about today, and in six months we get the Passover supper again, which is Jesus' last Passover, when he becomes the ultimate Passover lamb. So when we think about the book of John, we think we're right in the story. You've got to remember, John chapter 6, it's been about seven months, and we're only six months away from Jesus dying on the cross. And that's where we're at in this story. So let us pray, and then we're going to open up John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, and we're going to spend pretty much our entire morning right there. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the rhythms and rituals you give us, for holidays of celebration and fun, for holidays of mourning and remembrance. We praise you that you sent your Son as the ultimate atoning sacrifice for us. We pray as we study your word, as we dive into it, that you would give us a heart that's softened, a mind that's softened, to receive your word, to examine it, to allow it to, to change our hearts and change our minds to become more like you, to follow you closer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 7 verse 1, after this, this would be after the Passover, after the teachings where people had walked away from Jesus from hard teachings. His, some of the disciples went, this is odd, not his 12 other disciples following. This is odd, we're walking away. After all this occurred, it's been about seven months, where Jesus, on a side note, we know in the other gospels that Jesus spent these seven months pouring into the disciples, discipling them. He kind of stepped back from public ministry. He did a little bit of miracles here and there, but it's really a time to dive in with the disciples. And this is where we pick up in John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Booths was at hand. So here we have, you know, it's the Feast of the Booths going on. Feast of the Booths, we want to put the Booths back up there real quick. It was a time that people would build these shacks, these little wooden structures with willow weeds, and the top of it, what you're supposed to be able to be a little bit of shade, but you're supposed to be able to see the stars. You decorate it with gourds and different things to remember what God had done. Specifically, the Feast of Booths was a time to remember the 40 years that Israel was lost in the wilderness and how God provided food. He provided manna. He provided water. There's multiple times that they pour out water. It's remembering where God provided water so many times. And if you've ever been in like a desert light or, you know, a Missouri summer when we're in a drought and you're just like, I'm thirsty, having water. It's, it's really important to have water. So they would build these, these booths or these little tabernacles outside and weather permitting, they would sleep in them. They would eat in them. If you lived in the city, you might put that on your roof. How many of you would put a little tent on your roof and camp on it? Seems, seems a little odd. 
But they did this to remember what God had done in the wilderness. And this is where we're picking up in the story of God providing protection. That's what they're celebrating. And this Feast of Booths was one of three holidays that if you're close enough to Jerusalem, you were supposed to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You have the Passover, which we know. You have the Feast of Weeks. And you have the Feast of Booths. Ironically, all three of these actually have to do with different harvest time periods of Israel. But what we're going to focus on is this is a time period, if you're within the Judean area, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate together. Because the holidays wasn't just, oh, I celebrate this with my family. It was a community remembering what God has done. Verse 3. So his brothers said to him, so Jesus with his brothers... You know, his brothers from Joseph and Mary, she had kids. And they said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. So his brothers were beginning to challenge Jesus, their brother. They didn't believe in what he was doing. They didn't believe he was doing these things. And Jesus has been spending the last year on the outside, on the perimeter, not in Jerusalem, doing these miraculous signs, doing these healings, doing these teachings. His brothers say, go to to Jerusalem. We've got a festival going on. Go and prove yourself. If you really do these things, go and prove it. You think of John chapter 6, many disciples had walked away because Jesus is hard teaching. The brother's saying, go prove it. Go show yourself to be correct. Now, it's kind of dangerous whenever you use the phrase to prove yourself. Why don't you go show yourself to Jesus? Because you're not in good company when you say those things. When Jesus was in the desert fasting, Satan came up to him. And he challenged Jesus. If you're truly the son of God, go jump off this cliff. If you're truly the son of God, then this. If you're truly the son of God, prove it. And Jesus quotes scripture at him and says no. And at the end, Satan goes, if you bow down, I'll give you everything. Which is interesting. And we're going to get back to that. And then you have Jesus on the cross. If you're truly the son of God, Call on your angels to get you down here, from here. So there's a challenge that's happening. It's usually not a good company. That's what his brothers are doing. Go to Jerusalem and prove yourself. See, they didn't believe. But if Jesus would go to Jerusalem, you got the religious leaders there. You got everyone else there. What do they say about Jesus? So his brother's not believing in him. He's saying, give us a sign. Go there and prove it that we may believe. At this time, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that it walks or evil. So Jesus talks about time. See, to Jesus, timing is everything. And for us, timing can be everything or timing can be nothing. Jesus' timing is everything. It's interesting here, I, I 
been going back and forth. I'm going to include it. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to share it and take it for what it's worth. John usually uses the term hora. And for you Greek scholars, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. For time. And typically that means hour. Like my hour has not come. Pointing to the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. And here it's interesting that Jesus uses a different term that John writes kairos. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. I apologize. Rather than hora. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying it's not the proper time. It's not, it's not the, the end time, the specific ordained time by God. But maybe it's not the right time. Because to Jesus, timing is everything. And so if he would have came at the beginning of the festival, there'd be problems. So maybe it's just not the right timing. That's what he's telling his brothers. But also he says, if my time's not fully come, my time's not here. It's the wrong timing. And for Jesus, timing is everything. Remember the wedding feast we spoke about beginning of the year, way back when, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when his mom comes up to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. We're out of wine. And he goes, what am I supposed to do? My time's not here. Timing is important. And we, I think as Christians, we can look at our lives and see how God works on perfect timing. I'll share how my wife and I came to come down to Columbia, to come down to Missouri, the last place in North that we would want to go to. I was laid off and I was, had the CARES Act and so I had unemployment and we were able to make ends meet and I was trying to flip out because I, I had, that was ending, my insurance was ending and if I didn't have that, I wasn't going to be make ends meet and pay for anything. And I'm, I've been applying to everywhere. And I'm in Arizona. The last week that I'm going to have the extra $600 CARES Act that allowed us to provide for the family. I was moving my grandparents up. As of the next week, I wasn't going to be make bill payments. Like, I was going to run out of money. That's what was going to happen. And last week, get two phone calls. Do I want to go to Wisconsin? Do I want to go to Missouri? Come to Missouri, I can start you on Monday. Perfect timing. Perfect timing for provision. No reason why you were going to come to Missouri other than, hey, here's a job. I'm going to take you down there. And we're going, okay, let's go. And now we're here. Another interesting thing that's happened with God's timing is when my wife and I went to our last church, Cornerstone Baptist Church. God's timing is everything when you trust and follow him. Uh, went to this this uh, youth leader conference, a.k.a. goatee convention, because at that time, every youth pastor had a goatee. And you walked in and it literally was like, goatee Xavier, it was great. Um, Shane and Shane was leading worship, and I love me some Shane and Shane. I love just, just the way they sing. And Francis Chan was about to speak before he went kind of off the deep end. And uh, I was so excited for both of them, and I just had this notion of, shut up, sit down, and write. And up writing this letter saying, hey, it's time to go. It's time to move. Time to do something to change. We were living in Winterset at the time. It took two months for my wife and I to get on the same page with this. And we go to, I go and I visit Cornerstone Baptist Church after we get on the same page. Happened to be the first day that the new pastor was coming in and went, this is the church we're going to go spend. We ended up spending seven years at serving and walking together. God's timing was everything in that. And here we see Jesus saying, my time is not yet come. But he does a dig. 
to his brothers. Because he tells his brothers, your time is any time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because the deeds are evil. You see, for his brothers, he didn't believe in him. It didn't matter what time they went. It didn't matter what they did. Because they weren't seeking God's timing. They were of the world. What he's really saying is, Jesus is saying is, the world can't hate you because you're part of the world. Which should make us think of uh, Matthew chapter 12 verse 30. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not following Jesus, you're not following God's timing, you're not following God's will, your time doesn't matter. So in a way, he's telling his brothers, you don't believe, thus, you're part of the world. And being part of the world means your deeds are evil. Just kind of follow the logic with it. Um, So you can go whenever, and he says, I'm not going to go up. Jesus tells them, I'm not going up to the feast. For my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So his brothers went on, and Jesus stayed back. But after his brothers had gone, verse 10, had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Wait a second. You people quick to look at the details. What just happened here? Jesus told them, them, I'm not going to the feast. And then he goes up to the feast anyways. Now, if you look at this, one way you can look at it is Jesus just lied to his brothers. I'm not going to the feast, but he goes up anyways. And I can tell you, there's going to be people that looked at this passage and goes, see, Jesus was a liar. He lied to his brothers. I don't think that's an honest reading of this passage. See, his brothers wanted him to go publicly to prove himself. They were challenging him. And if Jesus would have went in the very beginning, people would have swarmed him. It would have been gathered great crowds. Instead, he doesn't go publicly. He goes in secret. He sneaks in. And he doesn't go in the beginning. He goes a little bit later. So Jesus isn't lying. But what he's telling them is, my time's not yet to be public, to go out and cause a, an issue My time is not here to have a triumphant entry. That's going to happen in a few months. My time is to go in to teach. And Jesus is doing something here. One thing you'll notice when Jesus goes to the Jewish leaders, to Jerusalem, he's always causing problems. The the building up this anger against him, this hatred towards him, which is leading to a conclusion. So after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast, and he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among his people, among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no one is leading people astray. No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. See, if Jesus would have went to the beginning of the festival, would have been the wrong time to go, the Jews were looking for him. A.V. crowd, A.V. gathering, the Jews was looking for him, and looking for him not a good reason. But Jesus came secretly, went on up. And what were the people doing? They were murmuring. They were whispering to one another. Who is this Jesus guy? Everyone was talking about him. Everyone heard of the miracles. And so there's a few options they were looking at. Jesus is a good man. 
He says good things. He says nice things. He feeds people. He's a good guy. But that's not sufficient for who Jesus is. But that's one of the options. Maybe Jesus, the Jesus guy, he's just a good guy. Or maybe others were saying he was leading people astray. He's taking people away from the God of Israel, away from the Jewish customs. He's, he's deceiving people with his miracles. And what's interesting is no one would say this publicly, openly, as whispering back and forth. Because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of being ostracized out of the church or the synagogue. They're afraid of being publicly humiliated. They're afraid of the Jews because the Jews were looking to get Jesus. So if I say Jesus is good, they were afraid. So you have this whispering. Everyone's being quiet about it. But they all have their own ideas about who Jesus is. And every single one of those ideas are incomplete. They don't fulfill who Jesus is. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple. So the Feast of Booths lasts a week, seven days. So it's in the middle of it, Jesus goes up to the temple. He's gone secretly, he goes up. Avon's murmuring about who he is, and he begins to teach. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it is he who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and there's no falsehood in him. The Jews are recognized that Jesus is not learned. He hasn't studied. So what are they saying? Well, Jesus didn't go be taught in the best schools. Jesus didn't go and be taught by the best rabbis. You see, as a rabbi, your authority came from where you learned and who you were taught by. So I learned from Midwestern Baptist Seminary or Southwestern Baptist Seminary. I was taught by John MacArthur or David Newton or Adam Moss. These are the people that taught me. Thus, when I speak to you, I have authority. What I say is true. That's what the rabbis would do. They, when they spoke, they would all sometimes have lists of, this is everyone who I taught by, everyone who I was learned by, and this is why I have authority. This is why what I say you can trust, because you can trust these guys, so their authority is imparted on me. And as, as pastors and as preachers, we do the same thing. Oh, I was reading D.A. Carson, and D.A. Carson said this about this passage. And that's not a bad thing. Because we should seek people wiser than ourselves that have learned more and studied more and go, no, the commentary, this makes sense. This helps me understand what God's word says. It's not a bad thing. But what Jesus is telling them is my authority, my teaching comes from him who sent me. That is God himself. So Jesus is saying, I don't need your schools. I don't need your rabbis. Everything I say is coming directly from God. That's where my authority comes from. Your authority comes from other people. My authority comes from God. And Jesus begins this five-fold argument witness to himself, which begins with, my authority is from God. That's where my teaching comes from. 
If anyone's do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or my authority comes from. So the first thing is my teaching comes from God. That's where my authority comes from. That's where my teaching comes from. And then he kind of does a second piece. If your will is to do God's will, if you're seeking after God, you know what I say is true. Which means if you're not seeking after God's will, what I'm saying you see as false. Kind of an interesting statement there. Especially since if you look at John chapter 6 that we just studied the last few weeks on how no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. It takes God drawing somebody's heart to Him for them to see that God's will and Jesus' words are true. So it takes an intervention of God to make it true. And here Jesus is saying, if you follow God's will, which means God's drawn you, you know what I say is true. It's, it's an interesting kind of circular reasoning there that happens, but it takes God walking for us to believe that he is true. So first, his teaching is from God. Second, if you follow God, you know it's true. Third, the one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and there's no falsehood. Jesus' authority in teaching comes from God. And Jesus doesn't seek his own glory. He seeks his Father's glory. God's glory. So part of Jesus' argument is, I'm not here for myself. I'm here for him. I'm teaching what he says. In fact, we know, because we have the full book of John, we have the full gospels, we have the entire Bible that Jesus did not seek equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He left glory aside to walk on the earth as man. Fully man and fully God. He did the opposite of seeking his own glory. He sought God's glory in his own humbling. And lastly, Jesus' moral understanding far surpasses that of the other religious leaders. He goes on to talk about Moses. Now Moses is always a popular character with these discussions because you have the Passover, you have the Feast of Booths, you have everything that ties to the Exodus. And so he brings up that first off, one more point there, there is no falsehood on somebody who seeks God's glory, not their own. So Jesus is saying, in a way what Jesus is saying is there's no falsehood in me because I'm doing everything that the Father has sent me. And then he challenges the Jews and says, which, you all know the law of Moses, which one of you have kept it? Which the answer is none. So what Jesus also is doing here is he's comparing himself to the Jewish leaders and making this division of everything that I am, you're not. Which I think is an interesting side note there. But he goes on to talk about the law of Moses in verse 19. Has not Moses given you your law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one walk and you marveled at it. So Jesus saying, Someone's here to kill me because he's speaking against the Jewish leaders. Everyone goes, You're a demon. You're crazy. You're a crazy man. Which really, there's two options with Jesus. One, he's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Or two, he's a lunatic and people believed him. And here's a crowd saying, you're a demon. You got a demon. Like, you're crazy. What you're saying is crazy. No one's seeking to kill you. We know the Jews are, but the crowd's not seeing it. 
And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. At the, on the Sabbath, the man receives circumcision, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by your parents, but judge with right judgment. So, circumcision was not given to Moses. It was given before it was given to Abraham. And on the eighth day, you're supposed to circumcise your son. And all the guys go, at least I do, every time I hear that. And when Moses came about, God gave Moses more laws. And part of that was on the seventh day, you're to rest. You're not supposed to do any work. Just like God, when he created everything on the seventh day, he rested. Now, there's exceptions to the Sabbath rules of work. So you're not supposed to go to your fields and plow. You're not supposed to go and do work. But if something happened and somebody broke a leg, you can go and mend that leg, which is work. But it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. Same with circumcision. If you have a conflict of the law, circumcise on the eighth day. The eighth day falls on the Sabbath. You circumcise. Because in a way, that was a perfecting of the body from what God's called them to do. So they follow in obedience with that. And so there's always these exceptions to, to the Sabbath work rules because society itself, the Jewish leaders themselves, put on these additional requirements. But they would even admit that there's a moral judgment that must be made on regard to the Sabbath. Do you circumcise and be obedient or not? And Jesus is saying, you got mad at me. You're angry with me because I made the entire body whole. See, last time Jesus was in the area, he was teaching in a house and there were some people that came by and they carried this man who was paralytic. He couldn't walk. They ripped the roof off, lowered him down in there, and Jesus heals them on the Sabbath. Makes his whole body whole. And then he tells them to take up your mat and walk. And this was what really riled up the Jewish leaders. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. He did walk on the Sabbath. He said, somebody take up your mat and walk away on the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying, if you as Jewish leaders were actually doing a moral judgment that was correct, you would say what I did was a good thing. Instead, you say circumcision is good, but this isn't. You see, they were being dishonest in the judgment. And so Jesus says, don't judge by appearance, but judge with the right judgment, which could also be translated a righteous or an honest judgment. see, throughout this whole, all these verses, people were not judging Jesus with an honest and a right judgment. It began with people being afraid of the Jews, so they were talking in secret. He's a good man. Oh, he's deceiving people. He can't be true because of this, that, or the other thing, because they were afraid of other people. Then you have, when Jesus is saying, people seeking to kill him. You're a demon. You're, you're possessed. They're making all these excuses why they shouldn't believe in him. And the Jewish leaders, they didn't believe in him because 
they saw, thought their own political power, their own ways of thinking things. They looked at it on the surface. Remember, if we look through the different Gospels, you see examples of the Jewish leaders misinterpreting, misunderstanding the morality and the theology that, that was given to them. They would tie that to their, their spice cabinet, but they wouldn't show mercy or grace to people. So what is this right judgment? What is this honest judgment? What is this appearance? What does that mean to us? How, what do we need to think about this? See, it's easy to judge things by their appearances, by the way they look on the surface, by a worldly standard. And I want to make one point clear here. When I say judge, probably most of you or many of you that's ever been in the church are instantly thinking, if I say judge, judge not lest ye be judged. Remove the plank from your own eye before the speck from your brother's eye. Which these are all true things. But I want to make a distinction here from Matthew 7 to John, what Jesus is talking about here. Matthew 7 is about being a judgmental person, about judging other people. It's about me saying, Mike, you're horrible and here's why. When I'm a horrible person myself. Oh, I can't stand that guy over there. Here's all these reasons why. This is why that person's a sinner. That's what Matthew 7 is about. John chapter 7 when Jesus says judge here, he's talking about judging the theology and the morality that Jesus is teaching. There's a difference. In our culture, we tend to call it discernment. Discern what's the right theology. Discern what's the right moral thing to do. So what gets in the way of our moral judgments? What do we need to do about that? We got a slide up here that kind of helps with that. Um, we need to recognize what hinders our right judgment, repent and pursue the will of God. It can be a lot of things. It can be fear of others. I'm afraid if, if I believe X, Y, and Z about Jesus, if I believe X, Y, and Z about his word, they're not going to like me very much. My family might not like me very much. I might offend somebody. Well, let me tell you, the gospel is pretty offensive. God's word can be offensive to the world. Because what did Jesus say? Why did the world hate Jesus? Because the world's deeds are evil. Like, that's not a nice statement to say. Sometimes we have a tendency to justify our own disbelief. If you've ever shared the gospel with somebody, maybe some of you think this or have heard this, there's a lot of excuse about who Jesus is. Well, Jesus never existed. He was a crazy man. Well, he didn't really raise from the grave. His disciples went and took his body out and hid him away. Even though there's no truth behind any of that, no evidence behind any of that, people will believe these things so that they don't have to believe in Him. We justify our own disbelief. And that's something we need to repent from if that's us. We'd rather follow the world than follow God's word. We want to do what the world around us because that's easier to do. Our sinful desires can cloud our judgment. There's things, there's so many people I've seen walk away from the faith because of sexual sins. Because they start going, I like to live this way. I want to do this this way. I'm going to cheat on my wife. and I'm going to pursue this way. And you know what? This feels better. Thus God must not be true. And they end up walking away. Because they'd rather pursue their own sinful desires than to pursue God. Now that's a big example. But there's times that we look and we examine the God's word. And we go, you know, I probably shouldn't live this way. I probably shouldn't do this thing. 
But then we don't want to give it up, and so we find excuses. We don't be honest with God's word. We twist it so we can do what we want to do. Which is kind of what it all falls into. We want to live our lives on our own terms rather than under God's terms. And the one that kind of hit home for me is prior church and Christian heart. Some of us, we have disbelief. We struggle. Some of the people we talk with struggle with believing in Jesus because the church has hurt them. Because another Christian has hurt them. They, they weren't shown grace and mercy, but they were shown harshness and judgmentalism. And they were kicked out or driven out. And so now there's this pain that they are, are trying to overcome to even believe in Jesus to begin with. And if any of these things match with you, that's what, what we need to do is we need to repent to God. We need to pray and call out and help him with our disbelief and then seek God's will. So if some of you here have never done that, never sought Jesus as your Savior, never repented and said, honestly, he must be true, thus I want to believe in him. That's what we need to do. So what's some of the disbeliefs that we have? What misconceptions have we come to believe at times? I hear this one a lot. Jesus is a good moral teacher. And the church is just good for me and my family. I've had so many friends that I've talked to that goes, when I have kids, I'm going to take them to the church. Why? You don't believe in Jesus. Because it's good for them. It makes them good people. I've seen people drop the kids off at church and the parents go home because parents don't believe, but it's good for my kids. It makes them good people. It's good teaching. And there's people I've heard that, you know, Jesus says a lot of good things. He's a good guy, but he's not Savior. That's a misconception. It's a misbelief. The church is good. The church is good at training kids to righteousness. We, our church's ministry does an amazing job at raising them up. But it's all for nothing if they don't get to the point of believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. If they don't examine and see honestly that Jesus is Lord and the Son of God. It's all for nothing. The ones that hit homes for me is sometimes we like to judge things as sin. That's not sin due to family hurt, past. We want to say something is sinful in itself because we've seen people abuse it, seen people manipulate it, and we were hurt by it. And so we look at other people and go, well, they do X, Y, or Z, and that's sin, even though the Bible never calls it out. The Jewish leaders were great at that. When it came to the Sabbath, if you did X, Y, or Z, you're violating the Sabbath, even though that went beyond what the Scripture said. They added so much to what God's Word said because it made their appearance look like they were holier than everyone else. But it was not an honest or right judgment. And on the flip side, there's times that we judge things as, sin, as not sin due to the fear of the world, fear of friends, fear of family. We say it's okay, and the God's word says it's not. Because we aren't looking at God's word honestly. We're being clouded by fear, by, by pain, by looking at somebody and going, well, if I tell them that the way they're living is, is not good, that they need Jesus, and that it's going to kill them eventually and destroy them, then they're going to be mad at me. Thus, okay, that can't be true, so I'm going to justify somehow by manipulating scripture go no it's okay it just just was an old way of thinking see if we judge according to God's standards the world may not like us may not like me may not like you 
but behold to God's standards. And that can be hard, and so sometimes you want to say, eh, it's okay. But it's not the way we're supposed to be judging, discerning moral and theology. One I hear often is that we should believe, Je- that we would believe Jesus if he would just give us a sign. If you show me a sign, God, I will believe you and I will trust in you. Well, John chapter 12, verses 37 there's many signs, many miracles, many things given, and many people still don't believe. A miracle, a direct sign from God is not going to cause you to believe in him or trust in him. Because we find ways to justify that, hey, it wasn't really a miracle. Oh, it's just the weather. Oh, it's just, just a coincidence. Like, we're going to find ways to justify around it to not believe. So what are we to do as a church with this? We must discern and judge Jesus' teaching and the scriptures. It's, it's not just the job of me, of David, of Adam, of Nathan, to look at God's word and go, here's what's true, here's what's not true, spill it out to you, and then you go, okay, I'm good, I go home. It's the actual responsibility of each and every one of you to look at God's word, what Jesus says, and go, is this true and is this correct? So the question we have is, do you recognize his, that is Jesus' authority, as God's authority? Is what he say, says true and follows God? Do we recognize the word of God as God's authority? See, Jesus came down on flesh and he walked the earth and he taught. And it was recorded down in God's word. And God has given us his word for instruction, for growth for teaching. And so do we look at this as God's ultimate... uh, Let me rephrase that. I almost said something odd. Sometimes we do. That's why we need to have discernment of going, hey, maybe he said something funny. Do we see as God's word as his authority written for us, for our morality, for our theology, for how we should live our lives? Or do we look at God's word and it goes, well, there's some good stuff in there, but... It doesn't really match with today's standards, so I'm going to follow this instead. See, God's word is authoritative because it's written down for us. Anything that we say that God is like or God says is true that contradicts what his word says, the word should have authority over that. And we need the Holy Spirit to discern that with us. And then the last thing is, do we pursue God's will in searching out the scriptures? Are we seeking God to become closer to God when we look at his word, when we look at what's right theologically, what's right morally, how should I live my life? Is it because we want to pursue God? Or is it because I want to be better than the next guy? See, one thing I'm talking about here is I'm talking about, we're we're talking a lot about judging, discerning what's true and what's not. And there's a danger with that. Because what I'm not saying is we should go out heresy hunting, which is Joe's favorite Saturday activity. He told me that this morning. <laughs> We're not supposed to be going to God's Word and going, oh, you said this wrong, thus you're a heretic. Or you did this wrong, thus you're, you're a sinner. That's Matthew 7, judging. What it's saying is that we need to examine ourselves. Where have we misconstrued who God is? Where have we allowed the world or fear or pain to, to manipulate, to change God's word to where I don't follow it fully. It is your job as a church, as individuals, or my job 
to look at what's taught up here, what's preached up here, with an honest judgment, go, does this match up with God's word? As shepherds, we meet every week and we do this. And those times we go, okay, I think I know what you said, but that's not what you meant. And so we, we walk through that so we can have better understanding to see where we've missed the mark. And that is our job. Our job is to look at God's word and what Jesus has taught and say, is it true? Is it right? And if it is, then we are obligated to follow it. So I have to ask you, this day of Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you looked at His words and went, they are true, they are right, and He is the true Son of God that came down to pay the price for my sins, to make atonement for me, that I can be right with God. Or you live in your life and like, I'm good enough myself and I can make it my own way. Or are we being honest with our right judgment? As the ushers come forward for the communion, see, we, we talked about beginning about holidays and Passover and how that was an important ritual that the Israelites have. We regularly come apart to remember that Jesus is ultimate atonement, his death and resurrection, the blood that he shed, the body that was broken for us. And so if you have looked to Jesus with a right and honest judgment and said, Jesus, be my Savior, the elements are open for you. If you haven't, if you're struggling with doubts, with disbelief, if you're, if you're struggling with problems that's happened in the past that's, that's hindered you from believing in Jesus, to have a right and honest judgment, I would love to talk with you about that. So as Nathan begins playing, as we respond, what things have gotten in the way from us judging rightly? What beliefs have we believed because we want to justify them ourselves? Let us repent from those. Let us lay it all at the feet of Jesus who paid the price for our sins, who shed his blood for us, who died on a cross. And the story, we're six months away from that. We're close to Jesus laying down his life. So let us respond, reflect on that. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your words. We pray if there's anything that's dishonest in us, that our minds trying to manipulate, that we would, would not believe in you fully, that you would bring that, bring that to the forefront, that we may repent and follow your will. If there's anyone here that is struggling with believing in you, with trusting in you and your atoning sacrifice, may they have the courage, may you draw them to you to come up and speak with one of us that we may share your love and your grace and your mercy with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.